Well, welcome to the special edition of the Security Weekly News uh, on Friday this week. I'm Doug White, and it is episode 247 on the week of 9 October 2022. We've got uh, Fleming Shee is joining us as a guest, uh, VMware, Office, Common Spirit Health, Election Assaults, Thermal Attacks, and other stories on the Security Weekly News. This is Security Weekly. For security professionals, by security professionals. It's the show that keeps you up to date on the latest security news twice a week. Your trusted source for accurate security information and expert analysis. It's time for Security Weekly News. Managing and protecting the world's grueling number of endpoints, enabling Tanium's customers to see, control, and protect every endpoint everywhere. Tanium's mission is to provide certainty in uncertain times with the industry's only converged endpoint management. Trusted by the U.S. military and the majority of the Fortune 100 today, Tanium helps manage and protect nearly 30 million endpoints. Tanium, the power of certainty. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Tanium to learn more. Right now, everybody is talking about cryptocurrency, and the cyber criminals are hiding in the conversation. Cyber criminals use social engineering loaded with urgency and fear to successfully prey on your company, your employees, and your customers. Spear phishing is just one of the 13 types of email threats. Barracuda has identified 13 types and shows you how you can protect your company, your customers, and your reputation. Find out about the 13 email threat types and Barracuda email protection by going and getting your free ebook at securityweekly.com slash barracuda. That's securityweekly.com slash barracuda. All right, uh, Security Weekly News on Friday. So uh, today we got VMware still hasn't patched the vCenter server uh, 8.0 vulnerability. Uh, so still, and, and this was found, CrowdStrike found this last November and they disclosed it, and, and the vulnerability is in the integrated Windows authentication mechanism that is used in vCenter. If you don't know v, VMware, vCenter is a management system that's used to control all your VMs and, and, and your various hosts and your various bare metal ESXIs and all that kind of stuff in one place. And this integrated Windows authentication mechanism is a way to allow people to log into this thing. The vulnerability basically allows attackers who don't have admin access to elevate privileges on an unpatched server. So, you know, that would be bad. I mean, we can sum it all up in a very simple way. Um, there does seem to be some confusion about how dangerous this actually is. It sounds bad, but VMware says it can only be exploited by attackers using a vector network adjacent to the target server and that it is a high-complexity attack. So they're saying, eh, it's not, not the big of a deal. NIST rated it as low complexity. Now, you know, I mean, maybe at NIST that's easier to do. Uh, VMware did determine that the problem should be rated important, which means that the exploitation, according to them, that means the exploitation results in the complete compromise of confidentiality and or integrity of user data and or processing resources through user assistance or by authenticated attackers. That, that sounds pretty serious. I mean, I guess it all boils down to the complexity level. Like, so if it's easy to do versus if it's really, really hard to do, uh, because it sounds pretty bad if you're able to do it. Uh, previous patches that they put out uh, for the vCenter 7 version, because the vCenter 8, I don't even know if you can get vCenter 8 currently. I, I don't have it. I have vCenter 7. But the patches apparently didn't fix this either, and they caused additional problems. 
So VMware says new patches are pending, but it's not clear when they're going to release them. So in the meantime, VMware advised that you should use Active Directory over LDAP, which, uh, which makes sense if you have Active Directory, because that would supersede this, uh, this other stuff. And uh, they also said if you didn't have Active Directory over LDAP, you could use the Identity Provider Federation for Active Directory FS. So uh, some components of those can be used then to authenticate people that are not being, I guess, locally authenticated on that VMware uh, vCenter box. Microsoft Office 365 is an issue in their encrypt encryption approach uh, with Secure Disclosed that it is possible to fully or to partially or fully infer the contents of encrypted messages that are being sent through uh, 365 since they used a weak block cipher mode of operation. Uh, the message encryption feature allows for sending and receiving email confidentially, uh, but they use electronic codebook mode. And uh, this can be cracked uh, under certain conditions. So ECB apparently has repetitive areas in the plain text data, and it has the same result uh, when the same key is used. And so then you have a pattern. And I had some stuff in here that I decided not to talk about, but if you want to read about a, a classic example of that, look up the Enigma, uh, the Enigma stuff from World War II, and you'll see that that was a big deal there where they cracked it with a pattern. And, uh, you know, that's how you break crypto, is if you can find patterns in the plain text and the cipher text, and you can compare those things, and boom, you can break the crypto. Uh, the Adobe data breach in 2013 leaked 10 million plus passwords, and that was caused by ECB mode use. And in 2020, it was also caused a Zoom breach uh, that, that was out there. So big problems with this. Uh, so basically at this point, if messages with your email can be captured, then somebody can analyze them offline and probably break the encryption. So there's apparently no solution to this problem at this point. And the problem was reported to Microsoft back in January of this year, and Microsoft even paid a bug bounty for it, but they have not yet patched it. With Secure Advise that you should not trust the Office 365 message encryption, and by that they simply mean uh, assume it can be broken, which you probably should be assuming anyway. Uh, Microsoft basically said, quote, it's a rights management feature, and it is intended as a tool to prevent accidental misuse, not a security boundary. What? They, they went on to advise that they recommend you, they, I was a little put off by this, they recommend you follow best security practice, update your system, use multi-factor, and have anti-malware in place. So it's sort of, damn it, Jim, I'm a doctor, not, but I'm not a doctor. Save yourselves. Um, but apparently ECB is necessary to support legacy components in the mail system, so you know they're probably not going to be able to just get rid of it uh, at this point. Speaking of Microsoft, they are apparently dumping the name Office. Uh, Office 365 will become Microsoft 365. I guess Mr. Microsoft really likes to see his name on things. I, I, I'm not sure. But the name Office has literally been around for 32 years. I mean, talk about a brand. Uh, it was first released in 1990. So that was when Office first hit the shelves. Uh, back in 1990, I was training people on Lotus 123, WordPerfect, and DBase 3+. Remember those? Probably not. Uh, yeah, some, some people do, but maybe maybe not everyone. Uh, one of my books was called DBase 3 Plus Programming, and uh, I used to do training on Lotus. Hi, Linda, if you're still around. 
Um, but anywho, in, in 2017, they started calling the online sub uh, subscription model of this Office 365. And in 2020, Office 365 became Microsoft 365. But apparently now all of the remaining Office designated sites, except for individual private, I guess, on disk packages, uh, are going to be rebranded to Microsoft 365, which will start with office.com in November. So if you own Microsoft365.com domain, uh, you're probably going to get a nice payday or a bunch of Microsoft people will show up and beat you senseless and take it away from you, which is more likely. But other components uh, will also then change over in January of 2023. Microsoft says this will not affect anything. It won't change any of your products or your license or anything else, that it's just a name change. Common Spirit Health is the second largest nonprofit hospital network in the United States. And a week after an attack on their systems, they are still down, apparently. So far, the provider has not provided much information about what happened or when they may have all services back online. So they've been very, you know, closed mouth about this. Apparently, at least at some point, and they may still be in this situation, they had no access to electronic patient files, scheduling tools were down, treatments were being delayed, and ambulances to those hospitals were being diverted with staff, it said staff is resorting to pen and paper. Remember when doctors had clipboards? Yeah, so that kind of thing. But long before doctors had like, you know, like iPads and all this stuff, uh, a lot of uh, functions in hospitals can't work uh, without uh, the network at this point. I know we did a study on that uh, some years ago, and we found out they couldn't even, you know, develop x-rays anymore because they don't have the chemicals or anything like that, so they rely on digital x-rays. Today's statement says they have taken certain systems offline and said an IT security issue was the problem. NBC News, who apparently had a, a source, said someone familiar with the remediation efforts, uh-oh, somebody's in trouble, said it was a ransomware attack. Uh, so, you know, I, I guess the reason I brought this story up uh, was because if you're in the healthcare field, this def definitely could be you next. There's a lot of targeting of healthcare uh, and election stuff, uh, as, as, we'll, as we'll see in the next story. The United States is less than a month away from the midterm elections. And apparently election workers are being heavily targeted with a surge, massive surge in phishing and malware laden emails. Trellick said that malicious emails sent to Arizona County election workers had risen 78% between the first and second quarter of this year, which was leading up to the primary election in August. And they jumped another 104% by third quarter. So that's that just, uh, you know, wrapping up. So, wow. In Pennsylvania, they said a 282% increase occurred in the first quarter of this year and another 69% increase in the second quarter because their primary was in May. According to the report, county-level workers are likely to be the least sophisticated uh, election managers in the election process. The main goals of the campaign appear to be the acquisition of election worker credentials or the delivery of malware to election platforms. The FBI and CISA have both warned about these phishing emails in the last several days, and CISA does have a free toolkit for state and local officials that can assist you with security posture uh, if you need it. So check that out if you're working in that field. A thermal attack. I, I, I hadn't when I saw the the headline. I was like, "What is a thermal attack?" But uh, I, you know, I was thinking more like a heat gun. But a thermal attack. I, I didn't know what it was when I read about it. It's essentially where somebody takes a thermal imaging camera to capture keystrokes from a distance. 
And the University of Glasgow created a tool called ThermoSecure, which is an AI-enabled product that will show how easy it is to do this because all you need is a thermal imaging camera and this back-end software. So basically the way this works is you set up your camera and you take a picture of a computer keyboard, a smartphone screen, or an ATM keypad after someone has just used it. You know, so you type something in and back away from it, and they, they look at it. And guess what? That heat signature is going to show up on the keys that they pressed. So if you typed in a PIN number, you typed in a password or whatever. And, and I immediately remembered, like, I, you know, I used to go after those crypto locks. You know, we were doing audits, and I would go after the crypto locks. The very first thing I did was get down on my knees and look at it and see where the paint was worn off. And you could see the paint worn off of two buttons. You knew what, you know, you had, boy, you've got a huge insight into what that crypto code probably is. I think the biggest one I ever got had, like, maybe 12 buttons on it. And again, it was just, you could see where it was worn down. You could see the paint around the button. The buttons were nice, polished stainless steel, but all around them was black paint. And that paint was worn away on about three or four of those buttons. And so you start guessing codes and pretty quickly you're going to get it. So this is kind of like that, only it probably a lot more effective than my old Mark one eyeball approach, because they're actually seeing what you touched. Uh, their thermosecure tool uses AI to attempt to crack the passwords after they thermal scanned various screens. And that, of course, ended up being uh, 16 character passwords. Uh, how many people have those? 67% of them where they were successful in, in cracking. 12 character passwords, they got 82%. And 8 character passwords, 93% of the time. They didn't comment on those four-digit pins that so many places use. And so I was like, boy, that's, that is an easy one. The only recommendation they have is using longer passwords. <laughs> I was like, uh, I guess that guy that was filming me at the ATM the other night wasn't probably a fan or a paparazzi. I, I was sure he was. He was, you know, I was like, man, that guy must be like a Uber fan. Like, hey, how you doing? Let me just get some money out. Um, but the ATM is probably going to have to put a bucket of ice water next to the so you can stick your hand in there and like freeze it before you touch the screen or something like that. Uh, yeah, be careful out there if you see people observing you, and just like always. Well, today, our special guest is Fleming She, the CTO of Barracuda Networks. You've been on the show many times. Um, Fleming's been on the news quite a few times talking to us, and uh, we're going to talk about a couple of different things. So welcome, Fleming. How are you doing? Uh, great. Thank you for having me again. Um, happy Friday. Yeah, it's, I, I'm sure that some, some of us have almost the same thing every day. So Friday's <laughs> when you do the news, and yeah, and then Saturday's when you start doing the working up stuff for next week. But, you know, that's, yeah, that's fine. Um, so one of the things uh, that we were going to talk about today was insurance. And, and I'm, I'm yeah. always interested in talking about insurance because I, I've always had this, uh, and, and not everybody agrees with me on this and, and gets upset even, but I always, I always argued that one of the solutions to a lot of problems is underwriting because when underwriters come in, and they tell you, you have to do this. You have to comply with these rules, regardless of what the law says. You have to have uh, fire protection. And mm. if you don't have it, we won't give you insurance. And cybersecurity kind of evolved out of, I mean, cybersecurity insurance policy started off with this sort of opportunistic feel to me, where sure. you were seeing tons and tons of ads saying, you know, all your problems will be solved. Just buy this policy. And, mm. and, that, and so people did. And then they started getting ransomware. And then the insurers started going, uh-oh, wait, we're going to have, how much did you say? And they're like, well, $9.8 million, uh, you know, and, and, and the insurers started going, well, maybe we got to back off on this a little bit because we can't, and mm. we got caps on policies. And I think there's a sort of, in the industry right now, in the insurance industry, there seems to be a kind of, 
shakeout restructuring going around how insurance is going to work going forward. So, I, I mean, I know you have some some comments about that. So, so what what what's your take on it right now? Yeah, we saw some studies, uh, especially related to the increase of cyber insurance, uh, you know, purchasing. Uh, you know, last year we saw, uh, you know, 8% increase um, in the smaller businesses, like from 30% of the overall purchasers are uh, to 38%. So you can see the, the, the impact is hitting the uh, small, medium sized uh, businesses as well. Um, and uh, I think the, the key here is to see that trend because now uh, insurers, like you said, insurance is here to make money, right? So um, initially it's opportunistic. Oh, there's a risk. Okay, let's go figure out how to help these uh, poor victims. Uh, but in really uh, what they're trying to do is figure out how to uh, structure uh, something to uh, to actually make it sensible. So it's a, it's a, it's a profitable uh, business, um, you know, both ways. So what, one of the things I believe that's happening now is because the, the, the costs for these cyber attacks are way up, then the amount of attacks are way up, and there's so much data breach in the last, uh, I, I guess, 15 years, it, 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 the risk is definitely there for everyone. So what they're looking to do is really apply a lot of, um, you know, uh, uh, I would just say uh, strict, it's a lot less lenient in, in compared to in the, uh, in the past. Uh, more recently, I think they're looking at all the different aspects of your business, right, from your risk level of your users, uh, which industry you're in, uh, all the way to uh, potentially your your protections. So um, because of that, you can see, um, you know, uh, I would say the last year, roughly about average 71% increase in cyber, uh, cyber security increase, or maybe close to 80%, actually 80% increase in average, on average for the for the premiums. And also, depending on whether you had a uh, episode or not, um, you know, the, 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 the premium increase was kind of pretty wide range from 25% to 400%, uh, which means, uh, it's really based on their assessment of your overall posture, uh, your capabilities for def defending yourself and what, what's the likelihood of you getting attacked. All those things become, uh, part of the, uh, of the picture when you are about to buy the, uh, the, uh, uh, the insurance policy. Um, to me, I think that's actually a healthy development because insurance companies can force us or force the, um, everyone to to comply with certain rules and start driving sort of adoption in, uh, in protection, detection, and response early on instead of uh, treating it like a, like a natural disaster, right? So I think their behavior on cyber insurance is, is quite nice. Uh, I mean, definitely is helpful uh, for companies who are looking for uh, getting a, a policy set up. So, uh, so, so there are some level of discipline um, and uh, uh, checking, you know, making sure uh, uh, checking all the, all the boxes when you're are setting up your, your business and, and getting ready for a cyber attack. Right. So I think that's to that degree, I think it's a positive thing. Do you, do you think this will end up getting down? I mean, so when I first started auditing people, we were mostly doing HIPAA and Sarbanes-Oxley. Mm -hmm. And and in those days, nobody really knew what to do. I mean, there was a lot of, of you know, this was in 2004, maybe something like that. And, you know, these new mm -hmm. laws had come into place that said, you have to do this. And nobody had any real guidance and there was no insurance and all this stuff. It was just literally me going in and I'm going, we have, we have this and here's this rack mm -hmm. and you look at it and go, 
I thought you guys said you had some computers. You, these are like a IBM mainframe, you know, that that's sitting here running or <laughs> an AS400 yeah. or, or whatever. Yeah. And we had to start trying to figure out what were best practice things when there was really not a lot of guidance. I mean, it, you know, there were certainly some things out there like from Asaka and some of these kind of groups that had put out some best practice guidelines. Do you think that insurance is going to start driving people to actually implement certain behaviors? Because what I've seen in the modern age was insurance companies asking people a basic set of questions and saying, you do have good practice, right? And, yeah. and the company's going, of course we do. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, love that topic actually um the compliance frameworks are absolutely out there to help you right if you're looking at nist or uh uh you know cis all these um uh, and all these frameworks are are actually uh sort of grouping of controls that matters to a particular uh context and to me i think NIST is absolutely very comprehensive but if you look at some of the foundational um, benchmarks that people are using in the cloud environments, you can see those controls are um, closely uh, aligned with uh, with the with something like NIST. So I think because of those tools are now available, uh, insurance companies are going to go above and beyond. Besides asking a question and just in honesty to answer the question, beyond that, they're going to validate your your practice. Your uh, making sure they're they see there's evidence, um, you know, of actual protection and detection and all those things. So I think the key there is to really understand where we are now. We have kind of transformed into this digital world where basically a lot of the, the risk is really on the on the tax surfaces all over uh, uh, the digital front. So from that perspective, I think uh, assessing your your business continuity uh, whether you can recover and because insurance companies can cover a whole range of things, uh, not only just a ransomware payment, but also if you do it right, they might cover loss of business um, and things like that. So you want to share and, and prepare, not just by uh, answering questions and getting into the compliance, uh, uh, you know, certification, but also show the practice that's actually uh, in place in your, in your business. So you can uh, effectively respond to an attack. Um, and I think that's uh, that's the key. Uh, and and the t difficult thing is not every business, especially smaller ones, have all those resources. Uh, I think reaching out uh, for um, you know having an insurance company to give you the the, the sort of the different options and you know where you want to be and and work with a, a service provider to come up with the, the actual uh, you know initiatives as well as uh, approval of all the activities that you have and be prepared to talk to an insurance policy, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, person. And when you do that, um, you, you'll be better off to be better preparing the front than, than later on you have to deal with, um, you know, hikes in insurance premium as well as potentially more loss of data. Right. So, yeah. Do you, I mean, do you think that like, I mean, I mean, small and mid-sized businesses always struggle with this stuff more, I think, because they don't have, mm -hmm. they don't have a huge legal staff that's sitting around waiting to do this. And, Mm -hmm. do, do you think that, that a lot of these companies think they're insured and they're not? I mean, I've, I've had a couple of those where people call me and they said, we thought we were covered and we went and called and, you know, and it's like, well, we're covered, but we're only going to get like $100,000 or something like that. Exactly. You're right. Um, in fact, there are a lot of areas where maybe you're not covered on. Like um, the, if you're not identifying, 
the type of business you're in and how you're controlling the data, especially your customers and clients. Uh, the damages to customers and clients uh, may not be covered. Um, also, uh, yeah, legal exposures and you know fines probably not covered, and maybe even um, this, this is really funny. Like if you if you are in a situation where you have gone through an incident, the improvements you're making for your uh, for security and and management control probably will, will not be covered. So the way I'm thinking about it is you spend that money up front to get a better premium because you can actually uh, influence the, the decision of the uh, of the policy where basically it, basically getting the right proposal because you have those controls. So spending money up front to, to be more prepared, you might get a better insurance premium. Um, for for cybersecurity, yeah, and and I think that same con that same discussion starts to expand into software and other areas because as we keep seeing all these stories about APIs and things like that being infected, APIs referring to other APIs referring to other APIs, yeah. and and those supply chain type attack. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. there's some liability surface problems out there as well in the future for companies that are developing code, because as you pull mm -hmm. things down and they become infected, and, and I know you were working on some SAS stuff uh, yeah. about that, that, that I know you wanted to talk about a little Love bit. To talk and, about it. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, what, what I'm looking to do is really finding ways to get the SaaS um, uh, builders uh, who, who are building these SaaS applications, because SaaS is one of the most important tools in our lives now. We're pivoted towards using SaaS for a lot of our business and productivity work. So if we are able to get the vendors who are building the SaaS applications uh, to, to actually natively build in security controls, uh, for example, if your app has, um, you know, doesn't have MFA capability or encryption capability, you should develop it. So security companies can actually provide a solution to actually constantly monitor the posture and work on uh, correcting the course because user errors are the most, um, probably the most uh, offender of the security because they, if they didn't configure it correctly, they can end up actually exposing your customer data through the, the SaaS, the, the, uh, the SaaS vendors building. So having that, um, you know, partnership between SaaS developers and security vendors, it would be super cool if we are able to instrument those things and, you know, not only programmatically, but also continuously monitoring and maybe even automation to adjust the security posture constantly for the customer who is using the SaaS. It will be fantastic. I think that's the the hope that we are, uh, you know, the vision I have is in I, the future I, doing that. Yeah, I think that's a great thing to be researching because I do think that we're going to get to a point where we almost have to do that stuff. I mean, mm -hmm. I mean, right now with the S bomb and all that kind of stuff going on, I, I mm. definitely think there's legislation coming that's going to start looking harder at the components that go into a piece of software. And they're going to be looking at what are the security components of it and how does it pull other things in. And I mean, we, exactly. we see, every every week we see stories about NPMs being contaminated. Mm -hmm. We see yeah. stories about GitHub's being contaminated, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And as people start really, I think, grabbing onto that object-oriented promise of, you know, this mm -hmm. modular reusable software, and we all do it. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I was just writing a little thing the other day, and I don't even know how many different, uh, you know, library options I added to that uh, that code that yeah. I, I that I did not. I admit it. 
it's not for production. It's just for my own amusement. But you know, when I start thinking about how many of those things I've actually looked at, understood, and know what what other dependencies are getting called in, so I, th I think mm -hmm. that's definitely a big a big issue. I'm glad you're doing some research on that. Do you think yeah. insurers yeah. are going to start forcing that as well? I I think so. Eventually, they will get sophisticated enough to understand your uh, users' activity on these SaaS applications. Um, uh, the, the example you described is super important. So a software supply chain, uh, sort of shift left uh, security, making sure data um, and libraries are, are secure. Uh, the, the more, uh, even the other side, shift right, where the users are using the SaaS, um, there could be security features within the SaaS itself, right? And I think insurance companies will definitely start looking at these uh, features, um, eventually be using them as leverages to, to, to drive better uh, behavior or, or preparation. Um, and one thing, don't forget, uh, cloud, uh, cloud uh, infrastructure providers had done this, right? So if you look at uh, the, the industry called the uh, Cloud Security Posture Management, CSPM, it's, it's a way to do it the same thing in, in SaaS because C, CSPM is about like making sure using AWS correctly, using Azure, all the components and, and, and all your instances and your access to your uh, your your system instances are, are done right. But SSPM is a little bit even more micro segmented into the application itself. So I think it's just evolution from infrastructure security posture to actual software security posture because you can build those controls in place. Uh, even humans make errors. Uh, security vendors like Barracuda or anyone can actually work on correcting those uh, um, errors um, and do that constantly, so that prevents a uh, potential data breach. And and I'm and I'm going to definitely caution small and medium business people again, because mm -hmm. many of us have worked for companies at that level that did not have massive teams of people. And, and, you know, when, when some of the jobs I've done, when somebody said shift left, shift right, I'm like, hey, look, it's just me here. You know, I mean, I, I mean, I'm the coder, I'm the security engineer, I'm the network engineer, I'm doing the whole thing. And that's a scary situation to be in when they start expanding this and saying, you know, oh, I know you want to use this, this API, but you're going to have to go through that API. And then I, that API uses 57 other APIs. And, 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 you know, that it was very intimidating to me just when I was thinking about it the other day, it didn't matter. It's just a dev code thing. So who cares? But I mean, I've written prod code before, and when I was mm -hmm. writing that, you know, it, it's pretty scary to go back and think, well, you know, look at all the different components of this, and when I don't have a massive group, and I don't, you know, the shift left is just me getting out of this chair and sitting down in the chair next to myself. <laughs> exactly. So, mm -hmm. well, well, that's great. So, thank you for being on uh, uh, yeah. once again, Fleming, and uh, we're going to see you a couple huh? more times, I think, this year, uh, so that's always exciting, and uh, I think, <laughs> it, it may be somebody else, but but I, th I think they, they told me you were going to be on again, so we'll look forward to that that uh, in the future. Thank you for being on. Same and, here. Thank you. All right. And okay. finally, can anybody figure out the virtual world? Uh, I mean, really, I, I mean, I mean, Case, you know, Case could deck in and live his life uh, in the online environment back in 1987 with that, you know, that William Gibson vision of, of what the, what this would be like, but I don't think it's ever been really realized. I mean, remember Second Life? I mean, Second Life came out in like 2003. And it was supposed to be the biggest thing that ever existed. It was supposed to take over the world. It was supposed to change the way things. 
we're going to be. But you know, but unlike sliced bread and indoor plumbing, it really never took off. I mean, I know people were jumping in there and paying a million dollars for these like real estate, virtual real estate stuff, which I don't really understand. But they were doing that, but it just never really went anywhere. So this report that I attached said that this new thing called Decentraland, which is a sandbox where you can buy and sell virtual real estate, they, they said it only had 38 active users in a 24-hour period, which, I don't know, that didn't really shock me. And Decentraland, you know, basically pushed back and said, oh, come on, you undercounted, we have all this other stuff going on. But I don't know. I, I wish there was a virtual world like Neuromancer, but so far I haven't seen it. Uh, you know, Meta's been working on this. They're trying to push their vision of, of this, you know, this VR-based world out. And again, it, it, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it seems like they just keep jacking the price of these goggles up to, I think, their new product is now $1,500. So I don't know if, if a lot of people are going to get involved in that until they can actually afford it. But that's the news. Thanks, Fleming. And we'll see you next week on the Security Weekly News.